welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. As one enters upon the discussion and consideration of heaven, one is struck by the possibility uh, that the word is maybe lacking in describing what we, what we mean when we try to encapsulate the eternality of blessedness together with God in a, uh, in a renovated creation, new heavens and a new earth. Uh, so we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit in this lecture. But I want to start with a topic that we have covered in, in other lectures previously, and that is with the creation as an, the idea of a three-story house. The three-story house as laid out for us in the book of uh, Genesis, and then recapitulated multiple times throughout the scriptures, is that of heavens and the earth, and then either under the earth or the waters. And those two ideas are actually synonymous uh, in the scriptures, under the earth or, or the seas, the waters. Um, what is interesting is that you find in Scripture as well, in different places, you have to sort of tease it out. I don't think there's any place where it's presented quite so plainly, that there are actually three levels to each of this, the, these three stories. So what you end up having is a nine-story house, if you will, in three parts. So one of the, the clearest ways to see this is when it comes to the earth. Uh, in the tabernacle, for instance, you've got the elements of the tabernacle that are bronze, the elements of the tabernacle that are silver, and those that are gold. You also have an outer court. You have an inner, uh, the, the holy place, and then the most holy place. Uh, 
so you have this uh, you have this exemplified even in the uh, in in the Garden of Eden as the as the, as on a mount where God would meet with with Adam and Eve, and then you've got the larger area of Eden, which was a region, and then you've got the sort of the the rest of the world. Uh, you have this three part perspective playing out in a lot of different ways and echoed out in a lot of um, a lot of different different ways. Uh, when it comes to the heavens, for instance, we see that there is a three-part heavens. First of all, you've got the skies, which would be the lowest heavens in which the birds dwell, fly. Then above that, you've got space, where you have the sun and the moon and the stars. But above that, you have what the scriptures call the highest heavens. Uh, or the Apostle Paul says, I was caught up to the third heaven. And, uh, and this is the place where God has chosen to to dwell. Now, is it a part of creation? Yes, it is. And yet, it is that place that sort of verges on the completely divine, almost, almost as if it were outside of creation. And in fact, you, you, you get this captured in the scriptures when it talks about, in, in several places, that even of God, that even the highest heavens cannot contain him. Right? That's a place where he's chosen to dwell in a special way, and yet even the highest heavens can't contain him. So, you've got this, this three-story house, and then you've got three tiers to each story. And, and the, the fascinating question, as it relates to what we would tend to call heaven, is the fact that God created us as human beings for the earth and not for heaven. This is fascinating and very interesting. Sorry, fascinating and very important, all right, to our theology of what we would call heaven. Um, we were not created to be like the angels dwelling without bodies in the highest heaven. We were created as bodily beings to, to live in the earth with God carrying out our calling, carrying out things like work and, and marriage, although that is one thing that will change in the, uh, you know, in the new earth. So this is, this is really important as we think about the idea of, of heaven, because what we find in scriptures to just try to encapsulate it very quickly before we sort of prove it and work through it, is, is the idea that Christ has come from heaven to earth. God has come to dwell with us, much in the same way as we will find the new, the, the, the heavenly Jerusalem will also come down and, and dwell here on the earth. And God will make his dwelling with man in sort of a greater Eden, a greater garden. And that is really the final state that the Christian ought to look to, uh, a state that encompasses the resurrection. And this is why the resurrection, one of the reasons why the resurrection is so important to Christian theology. Um, our, 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 our final state is not disembodied like angels in heaven. It is rather as resurrected people upon a new earth, God dwelling with us, us enjoying his blessings forever. So what I want to do is just first of all, do a little bit of the foreshadowing of what we find in the Old Testament pointing to heaven. And then I'm going to use uh, at least two triads to sort of uh, unfold the doctrine of, 
of heaven for us, both describing heaven and then uh, also sort of explaining its joy. What is so good about heaven? So, but first of all, let's, uh, let's consider the fact of how heaven was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And I want to suggest three things. I'm not sure this works as sort of a Trinitarian triad. It might just be a list of three things. <laughs> but we see, first of all, the fact that in many places, especially in the Psalms, we find the idea of the psalmist dwelling forever with God. Dwelling forever with God. He wants to dwell with God forever in his tabernacle. Uh, why don't you turn with me to Psalm 23. That very familiar psalm about the Lord our shepherd. And in the very last verse, Psalm 23, verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. And these sorts of statements, there are others like it, in Psalm 27, verse 4, uh, these, these cause us to think through, well, what, what exactly does the psalmist mean here? He, 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 he envisions in some way dwelling with God forever. So there's a foreshadowing here of heaven, even though they understand that they will die. So we also find the picture of a picture, or many pictures really, of perfection in the Old Testament. Um, we see this especially in Isaiah 60 to 62. So over the course of about three chapters, we see pictures of uh, a, a future in which there will be abundance and wealth without measure, in which there will be perfect relations, sometimes described as marriage. We see pictures of incredible joy and everlasting joy, pictures of beauty and glory. And so these, these pictures envision a future uh, of these of these glorious things. So we see in the Old Testament this foreshadowing of a, a dwelling forever with God. Second of, secondly, a, a, these pictures of perfection. And thirdly, we see in, in at least a couple of places the idea of a resurrection. Let's take a look at one of those places. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Maybe like me, you're discovering right now just how long Ezekiel is. Which precedes, Dan which precedes Daniel. <laughs> um, which is also interesting because at the end of Ezekiel, you've got this picture of a temple, which uh, commentators are divided upon as far as what it really envisions there. And some would say that envisions heaven as well. But in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as there has never been, since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Um, you may recall that the prophet Job likewise says, I know that my redeemer lives and in the end he shall stand upon the earth. My eyes shall see it, my own eyes and not another. Uh, and so there are um, statements of, 
of resurrection, foreshadowing resurrection, even if not explicit, uh, within the Old Testament. So what of, what of the believer's experience of heaven? What should we expect of, of this heaven that we, we say, uh, that we speak of? And, and I've mentioned some of this already. This is my first of about three triads this evening on heaven, all right? So, first of all, our experience of heaven is found in spiritual ascension. Spiritual ascension. What I mean by that is what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says, which is that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places even now. That there is a sense spiritually in which we may dwell in the heavens with God. And we experience this uh, perhaps at, at various times in our lives, but especially and particularly in times of prayer, in times of worship, in times of meditation, in times of reading God's word and, and well, meditating upon it as I there is a spiritual ascension that is the experience of heaven. John 7, John 17, Christ says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life there is defined, not so much quantitatively, but qualitatively, as having a relationship with God, and as, we, as knowing God, we should understand that in the most expansive sense. Sometimes when people speak of a relationship with God, it almost seems stripped of its, uh, of all its implications, as if it's just someone that you have a buddy-buddy relationship with, and, uh, to know God. So we have, we first of all, even right now, will experience heaven in this sense of the spiritual ascension. Second of all, and in the future, we will experience heaven in a certain sense when we die. In one place, the Apostle Paul says that when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. Absent from the body and present with the Lord. Let's take a look at one other place. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. I think maybe I will read from verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So, we know that the instant a believer dies, he goes to heaven to be with the Lord. And yet, we must be careful as Christians, very careful not to think of this as the ultimate state. This is, this is so important. And one way you can test whether we've got our theology right is by attending a Christian's funeral. And in the presentation of the message, which should certainly be there with the Christian's funeral, to ask yourself, is the final state presented, is heaven presented as the place where this person now is apart from the body, or is it presented as a resurrection that is sure to come? 
And throughout Christian history, all of our theologians have been careful to attend to the crucial aspect of Christian doctrine that everything relies upon the resurrection. The reason, of course, is our, Christ, is our Lord's resurrection, but also that we were not created for a disembodied state. The, uh, the Apostle Paul in one place, I believe it is 2 Corinthians, he talks about the fact that we don't want to be unclothed, but we wait to be further clothed. So it is the resurrection uh, and the creation of a new heavens and new earth, which is the ultimate experience of heaven. And that is what we look forward to. So uh, let me now describe, let me move to a second triad here and um, talk about what heaven really is, what it will be like. Uh, what is the description of heaven? So first of all, we should describe heaven as eternal righteousness. Eternal righteousness. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, Peter says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. In the passage that we read from Daniel chapter 12, it spoke of the righteous shining like the sun, as does Matthew 13, 43. In fact, if my memory serves me correctly, that particular language is taken actually from Matthew 13, um, which bears strong relationship to and echoes Daniel 12. In places like Isaiah 60, in Revelation 21, verse 27, we see that the new earth is, play, is, is described as a place where all sin comes to an end. There's no more wickedness. All wrongdoers, evildoers are, are cut off. In fact, we will not be able to sin in the, uh, in the new earth. We will see him and we will be like him because we see him as he is. So, let me just briefly mention as an apologetic angle here that we live in a world of evil. And I think that there is an, uh, an argument that we can present to the world in regards to heaven, that it is this place where it will be all good all the time. Now, the challenge with that, of course, is that somebody who, who does not yet submit to God's law may have a very different understanding of what goodness really is. And that is a hurdle that you will have to, you know, get over with someone. But still, there, there, there's so much evil in this world that is common to mankind and seen as evil, that this is a strong apologetic for the, for the, the message of, of heaven from the scriptures. So heaven is first a place of eternal righteousness. It is also a place of eternal rest. Eternal rest. And in fact, in the Old Testament, we see many pictures of, um, for instance, Micah chapter 4, of, of every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Um, we see in, in Isaiah chapter 65, well, why don't we turn there, Isaiah 65. You'll note that in verse 17, it's talking about um, creating a new heavens and a new earth. And then down in verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build, 
and, and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. and My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet, sorry, while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Returning to, to, to creation, right? And the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And even in, in our lives as Christians, uh, we see that this, this uh, in the scriptures and in the writings of people like the Apostle Paul, we see that this life is denominated as a, as a struggle, as, as a work. And we won't enter our final rest until heaven comes. Um, Hebrews 4 talks about there, there remains a Sabbath rest in which we are to enter. And we are to strive to enter that rest until we, until we receive it. Paul talks about being poured out as a drink offering, right? His life is spent. He has fought the good fight and finished the race. So heaven is a place of eternal rest. Thirdly, heaven is a place of eternal reward. Eternal reward. In Hebrews 11, it defines faith as the belief that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God rewards. That's, that's the kind of God he, he is. Now, he does not reward in the sense that we are ever in his debt. Uh, sorry. that. I say that the right way, that that God ever owes us anything, Um, but but he crowns his own goodness in our lives with his rewards, Uh, to paraphrase Augustine. Um, 2 Timothy 4.8 says, it talks about the crown of righteousness that will be rewarded uh, to those who who love him, who have awaited his appearing. Uh, Peter in a fascinating interaction in Matthew chapter 19, this is immediately after, there's, a, there's actually a couple examples of this in Mark and in Matthew, so hopefully I'm getting the right one correct as I paraphrase here. But um, we see that there's the story of the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and says, you know, what, you know, uh, what must I do to have eternal life? And, and you have this interaction where Jesus puts a, <laughs> says, well, obey the commandments. And, I've done all those. Well, have you really? Because now I'm going to apply one to your life. Uh, Go sell everything you have. And okay, we find that here's this young man who thought he'd obeyed all the rules, but actually he had been covetous, um, which is that last and most most difficult command because it deals not just with actions, but with the heart. Um, And so in going away, Peter and the other apostles, fascinating account, they, they come to him, to Jesus, and say, listen, we have given up everything. What will there be for us? And I love how Jesus answers here. It's it's very um, instructive because you might think that Jesus could rebuke them by saying, well, listen, you know, you're you're just doing your duty. And in a sense, they are. But what he says to them is, yeah, there's going to be a great reward. Yes, I I know you have left everything. I know that you have done what this man failed to do. I know that he's going to go and he's going to enjoy his present 
life and all of its blessings right now. And I know you've put that off. So guess what? There's going to be a rich reward for you. And he talks about a hundredfold reward there in the life to come. Um, so there is a, heaven will be a time of being rewarded. Let me mention one other thing here concerning rewards is that uh, the scriptures are, are relatively clear that there are distinctions in reward and when it comes to heaven and punishments when it comes to hell. Um, and there are some, for whatever the reasons are, there are some Christians that are very um, put off by this idea. But we, we ought to rejoice when God pours out his grace on others. And in, in heaven, there will be no jealousy. We'll just see the fittingness of God's reward to, to any and all. And uh, I think that as we mature in faith, we understand that. We, we are able to look at others and not be jealous, but just to remark at the astonishing things that God has done for them and, uh, and, and rejoice in God's grace and uh, not any sense of competition or jealousy. So this heaven will be a place of eternal righteousness, eternal rest, and eternal reward. Let me finish by uh, presenting one last triad. To talk about heaven's joy. What, it, what will be heaven's joy? Um, and to maybe to some degree this overlaps with our last triad. It's not exactly the same, but perhaps there is some, there's some relationship. First of all, and you know these triads, if I'm telling you it's a triad or a Trinitarian triad, you know that the number one thing is most important. And it certainly is here. What is heaven's joy? Well, first of all, it is the enjoyment of God. The enjoyment of God. And again, we, we get this sense in John 17, where Christ speaks about eternal life is to know you, uh, the only true God, and then Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There is no greater enjoyment than of God himself. His blessings, his person, triune life and uh, it's hard to put into words the the word that's been used often throughout theological history is the beatific vision the idea of seeing God and and enjoying him and seeing him that will be our greatest our greatest joy the one in the case of of Christ, the one who has given up everything for us. He gave himself as a, as a perfect sacrifice on our behalf, who will show us the wounds that he bore for us. And this is love, not that he, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. I guess speaking about the Father now, this passage that comes to mind. But uh, Son of God, yeah, the other passage that I'm thinking of is, is in Colossians, I believe. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. To know that great love of God. Us as his children. He as our Father, our God, our Savior. The second enjoyment, uh, or maybe just secondly, our second category of enjoyment, maybe would be the best way of speaking of it, will be uh, of the saints. We will enjoy the fellowship of the saints tremendously. We have a sense of this. We get, a, we get a flavor, a taste of this in the meeting of the saints week by week. 
the worship uh, of Christ's church as we gather together, as we even sup together around the Lord's table, and even at other times that we eat together, um, sing songs of praise to our God, and, and even at times in which we are enjoying, uh, maybe just even enjoying life together, playing games, singing songs, chatting, having a coffee together, uh, the enjoyment of the saints. And, and in a sense, of course, it is the enjoyment of fellowship and company and people. But we ought to recognize that that is so often marred by sin, if not in obvious ways, in very subtle ways. I don't know if you've, how often you've had the occasion where you have to sort of withhold an aspect of who you are from, from someone else. Just because of small differences or, or maybe small fears. But there won't be any of that in heaven. It'll be perfect and complete fellowship with all that we are giving and receiving. And there will be great fellowship in the saints. Lastly, there will be the enjoyment of creation. We were, we were made for this earth. We should not be reticent to to say that and to delight in that. All the good things God gives us, whether it's playing sports, reading a good book, being artistic and creating something, woodworking. I mean, you could just go on and on and on, building things, having, enjoying your home, enjoying nature, going for a hike, exploring places you've never been. Again, the, the list is almost endless, isn't it? And, and that really shows us in a small way the greatness and the glory and the expanse of the enjoyment that we will have forever in heaven. Um, our enjoyment of creation will be eclipsed by enjo our enjoyment of the saints and our, especially our enjoyment of God. But God has created this for us, for us to enjoy. And we will enjoy, for instance, the greatest food. <laughs> we'll enjoy animals, I believe, in the new creation. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Heaven, you might say, is very earthy. <laughs> and uh, there is a, I think it's been captured beautifully by C.S. Lewis. I, I sort of threw him under the bus briefly in the last lecture. He's, he's, uh, he's not as good on hell as he is on heaven. But he's very good on heaven. And uh, even if you read The Last Battle, um, it's a beautiful <laughs> picture. It's a, it's a child's story, but it's a beautiful picture of, uh, of what heaven maybe like uh, in this metaphorical sense, of course. So God has created you for eternal joy. Our God, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the, and the Spirit permeating everything will be our chief joy. But all things that God has created for us, we will enjoy forever as we experience a heaven uh, on the new earth uh, after the resurrection. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lecture Series on the Doctrines of Heaven and Hell. You can find all our lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. These two lectures signal the close of our first year of providing these lectures. We will be taking a break from the end of April until September. In September, Lord willing, we will be launching our second year of New Antioch Institute 
and look forward to providing you, our listener, with a second season of lectures. We are now accepting applications for the fall, and if you would like to know more about New Antioch Institute and download our application, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com or again, go to our website, newantiochinstitute.com and you can download our application there. You can also sign up for New Antioch's newsletter where you'll receive updates about one a month regarding what is happening in and around New Antioch. If you'd like to know more about how you can support New Antioch, please email us and we'd be happy to chat more with you. You can also find New Antioch on Facebook. You can find us there by searching for New Antioch Institute or through the link provided in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for your support, whether it's through prayer or through financial giving. Either way, we deeply appreciate your partnership with us in graduating people who will engage the culture as change agents for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Have a great day. Take care. Thank you.